Hello, and welcome to Mega Ten Marathon, featuring Paul M. Davis from the Plumbers Don't Wear Ties series. <laughs> and, and I'm Elisa James from Superman 64. And uh, this is Alex Dorada Wolf from Zero the Kamikaze Squirrel. And uh, if you can't tell from that, that introduction, we are doing the game that you've asked for and that you've wanted. Nocturne! Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne! The <laughs> most loved, most notorious, most, like, get-good scrub game in the series. Possibly. It's definitely a hard and sometimes unfair game, but I don't know. We'll probably get into it in a later episode. But I think maybe its reputation precedes itself as far as its difficulty because it's maybe the most like well-known mainline game. But Yeah, it's hard. It's definitely a hard game. Yeah. If you're going to argue with that, yeah, that's yeah. it's a bit much. But <laughs> you know, compared to the previous numbered games in the series, it's not you know, too far out of that. But again... It's uh, a game from a different time, and it's being judged on some very different criteria than old first-person Japanese game that was never translated to English officially. (laughs) Yeah. We're not going to get too far into the actual story of the game, because we have a lot to talk about as far as the backstory um, and development in this episode. But some of the things that are most difficult about it, or most challenging about it, that I found were just a lot of the quality of life features that we've gotten so used to that we're missing. And some also some bullshit boss fights. I'm not, not yeah. denying that. But uh, yeah, having to walk uh, across the desert for an hour with random encounters just to save your game and you can't put your system on suspend mode, is that is almost as frustrating as Matador. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> What uh, what's y'all's uh, history with this game? Let's see, when did I play this? I honestly don't remember when I first played this. I know I played some of the SNES ones first when I was a teenager. I want to say I probably picked this up at some point during the tail end of the PS2 period, which... Yeah, no, that would be about right. I think it was before I played any of the Persona games, and I did not get too far in it the first time I played it because uh, I'm, just du- I'm dungeon stuff I'm bad at. <laughs> uh, but I was really impressed with a lot of what the game was doing, and I wanted to keep playing it. I think I probably ended up reading a Let's Play back then. <laughs> <laughs> I like one of in, in the early days with your screenshot Let's Plays. Oh, nice. yeah. Oh. Nice. Yeah, I miss those, especially like from... Um... Something awful for him. Yeah. Some of the best ones. As for me, let me think. I think because I, of course, I have first started Persona 3. So after that, when I really got attached to that, when I started looking up like more S&T games to play, and I noticed that a bunch of the PS2 ones were available. Nocturne, and of course, Devil Summoner, and Digital Devil Saga. So I just started buying those to try it out, see how I liked them. That was probably like, I want to say not mid-2000, probably maybe 2012, like 2013, something around that, when I started doing that. And I started just playing through these games and ended up just falling in love with Nocturne because 
it just it really just did feel very special looking into it realizing that it was that first like jump for them into 3d and honestly blown away at how the graphics still held up to this day and i think mm-hmm. it's you know really because they chose to do the cell shading which was yeah a, a very smart idea uh, especially for that company back then they weren't like alice obviously didn't have the, the kind of huge budget where they could even think of going super realistic like you know how square enix could just command that so it made sense for them to pick something that uh would stand out it'll be a lot simpler for them and something that still looks great so yeah cell shading was specifically chosen so they could realize the scope of the game yeah if, if they decided to go with a more realistic art style it would have definitely limited their abilities because of their limited resources exactly yeah for me i think that i came to it not really that long ago it was definitely before i started doing this podcast but it was probably maybe around the same time as you elisa it was maybe around 2014 2015 okay for me the first one the first smt game mainline game that I played was SMT4 after wow. Persona 4 being the first Megatime game that I played. And uh, so it just seemed logical to go back to SMT3. Yeah, I probably got maybe about a third of the way through it, playing it mm-hmm. on 3, like when the, they had the digitally downloadable uh, PS2 games. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's how I first finished it. Yeah, yeah. I still keep my PS3 hooked up just because of all the PS2 SMG games that I have on there. Yeah, it's definitely the best way to play a lot of those. But yeah, honestly, I, I did bounce off of it after about the first third of the game. And I think to a degree it was because every SMG game is really desolate. But this one in particular felt very desolate. And it's definitely a mood. And I just wasn't feeling the mood at the time. Uh, Yeah, for for this series of episodes, this is the first time that I am playing it. And I love it. But uh, yeah, you got to be there for it. (laughs) Yeah, I have weirdly mixed feelings about this game. Like on the one hand... On an artistic level, and just in the broadest sense of that term, I love it. I think everything it's doing is so smartly put together and well thought out and interesting. It's not a game I love playing that much. It's not the most fun. (laughs) It's very (laughs) stripped down in a lot of ways that can make it feel pretty grueling. That gels so nicely with with what it's laying down aesthetically that I can't really hold that against the game. Yeah. I think for me, one of the things that was... There's a ton of story in this game, and it's really interesting. Coming off uh, SMT4, which is has a much more dense story, the kind of like long gaps between like really any kind of real plot development happening in this game was definitely challenging for me. Yeah, that's what a lot of it comes down to. Is the sto- like the story that's there is excellent. Like, really top-notch. But it's really spread out over a lot of go through this dungeon and fight these random encounters. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I definitely understand. can feel very stark at times. And I guess for me, that's what, like, 
attracted me because I'm extremely used to playing JRPGs that are, you know, very story heavy. Some that are very cutscene heavy. They have a lot of plot. So I think like when I started playing this game and having something that was more like subtle, that very old school traditional kind of dungeon exploration, there's definitely some really great plot, but it's spread out a lot more. It has that certain like almost oppressive at times atmosphere. And I guess for me, that was such a huge standout and that made me even more like fascinated with this game. That's what like really kept me going as well as like the battle system. I fell in love. It's a really good battle system too. I did. Fell in love with it. It's so good. So precise, very simple, but the strategy. And so it was just like, I really got hooked almost immediately. And it was funny because I, I was playing this game on my PS2, too, so. <laughs> I really wish I had the opportunity to play these games, uh, the PS2 SMG games, on the original hardware with a real uh, CRT TV. Because, yeah, it, you don't quite get the same effect playing it on a PS3 on an HD TV, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's always true. Yeah. But yeah, if I if I had this game like in high school, I know I would have been absolutely obsessed with it. Uh, if I had happened to come across it. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, yeah, it would have been like one of those like things that became my thing for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I had seen it when I was sixteen. Yeah, so uh, development on Nocturne began in 2000, following a uh, six-year gap between mainline titles. And uh, because it wasn't released in Japan until 2003, that was almost a decade-long gap. And that might not sound that crazy nowadays, like in the age of we're going to spend a decade to make Cyberpunk or Persona 5. (laughs) But that was an eternity of time. Like, there was more than three years between any franchise that hadn't had a sequel after like maybe two to three years was effectively dead. And it's hard with the way that Japanese developers tend to be and keep things close to their chest and Japanese companies. 
it was hard for me when I was doing research to get like clear confirmation on this, but it sounded like even back back in this time, Atlas was looking at SMT as a not so much a defunct uh, franchise, but they were looking at the success of spinoffs like SMTF and Persona, and sort of had an attitude of do we really even need to make uh, mainline SMT games anymore if these spinoffs seem to be more successful and have more mindshare? Yeah, it seems like that was one of the things that was contributing to the development cycle, which was challenging by all accounts. The team was dealing with transitioning to developing on new hardware for them, PS2, and, uh, you know, Atlas has always had a hard time with generational changes, but also working with the fully 3D models. And there was definitely push and pull between the team, which really wanted to make an uncom- really wanted to make an uncompromising follow-up to the earlier mainline games and management, which was demanding that it be the most successful and accessible and mainstream SMT game to uh, date. So yeah, that team was made up of longtime uh, SMT art designer uh, Kazuma Kaneko. He should not be uh, unfamiliar to you if you have listened to the podcast for a while or uh, played a number of SMT games. He also served as one of the producers along with Koji Okada, who was the co-creator of the entire series and had directed most of the previous SMT games. Interestingly, the uh, game was directed by uh, Katsuro uh, Hashino, which was his first time in a director position, and he's best known for going on to form Peace Studio and uh, directing Personas 3 through 5. Just as an aside, that kind of cracks me up, because within the like diehard SMT community, there's such a... Uh, kind of attitude against the Persona games. And it's, it's the same people <laughs> who created <laughs> yeah. like, the most like beloved by diehard SMT fans. Exactly. Game. <laughs> and even Persona 3 had a, like a lot of the staff from the other, the other titles. That's why Persona 3 even has, it carries over a lot of that same atmosphere, even though it's more plot heavy. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, this game is, feels very similar to Persona 3 if you just look at those two next to each other. <laughs> oh yeah, there's really... These games are very closely connected, quite obviously. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, the connections continue with the music, which was primarily composed by Shoji Meguro, who basically began his career with the first Persona game, and he's very well-known and beloved for his compositions for Fallen Games, particularly uh, 3 three through 5. And so rather than making a direct sequel to uh, SMT2, Kaneko wanted to return to the more contemporary setting of the original SMT, rather than the science fiction aesthetic of its sequel. And if you haven't, I recommend uh, you either play SMT2 or go back and listen to our episodes about it, because it's a real it's a real trip. Yeah, that episode of the, the podcast is really the only exposure I've directly had to SMT2. <laughs> <laughs> really sounds like quite the game. It it's, is. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty fucking wild. It is. <laughs> The team believed that the game was more 
significant than just being like a third installment in the mainline series, which was this, which was the reasoning for uh, using a subtitle rather than the number three. I believe originally in development it was Vortex as opposed to uh, Nocturne. And the game uh, uses a third-person camera perspective rather than a uh, first-person dungeon-crawling perspective like the earlier installments. And apparently a major factor behind this decision was there was a lot of reports in Japan at the time of people suffering from a condition similar to car sickness called 3D sickness uh, that they were getting from uh, first-person shooters. And... uh, so the developers believe that the third-person perspective was easier on the player's eyes and uh, it would draw more attention to the protagonist as being a uh, half-demon. Yeah, I definitely appreciate the choice to go uh, with a third-person perspective. I do have some motion sickness issues with first-person 3D. It's unpredictable. I don't have it like with every 3D game I play, but certainly like first-person games like from this era and... You know, the PS1 era especially, like, those can really set me off. Yeah, yeah, same, same here. I do have a lot of issues with the first-person perspective. Like, I get very disoriented extremely quickly, and and it sucks because there's games like Borderlands, which I like playing, but I can't play for very long <laughs> because right. of it. So, like, so yeah, so I was very happy that they switched over to third person it was a really good idea honestly yeah yeah i think it was a really smart choice and i think that it also helped make the game more it's funny talking about nocturne as mainstream but made it more appealing to the mainstream because yeah like first person dungeon crawlers i know i'm probably gonna piss some people off by saying this but they really to me feel like a vestigial kind of like lit holdover from the like wizardry era yeah i have a real hard time playing first person dungeon crawlers for me it's mostly just navigating the maps Mm. i like it (laughs) (laughs) it's just beyond me i have some just issues navigating maps in general and in that perspective it's which way am i facing all the walls look the same what is going on (laughs) uh is that the entrance oh no (laughs) And there are random encounters every time you ha- take a few steps to figure out where you are, and that interrupts your <laughs> ability oh to figure out where you are on the map. It- yeah, honestly, a, a strong map design. Because I, I love games like Edgy and Odyssey. Like, I love them. So if it has a really good map design, which constantly makes sure that you're oriented, I never have issues. But I could definitely see people just not jiving with it. Because it really is, it really feels very archaic at times, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, but again, I, if it's something you grew up with and feels more natural to you, I can absolutely understand uh, having a lot of affection for it. Because yeah, I would think these games looked really cool if I could figure out where I was and play them. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alex, if you're interested, <laughs> I have a first-person perspective SMT game with a 30 teleporter uh, maze dungeon for you. If oh. you want. <laughs> <laughs> Teleporters, yeah. That's what those games need. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And if you're not familiar, I'm talking about Strange Journey. Yeah. (laughs) Don't forget all the traps. Definitely status ailment traps. Teleporter mazes. 30 of them. Plus. Uh, 
Oh my god. Anyway, so the cell shaded art style, which has helped make the game age really well, and you know, it's still looks great to this day. And it's even better to see those previews in HD of the remaster because it's just beautiful. It was basically chosen to make the game stand out from from others because at the time, cell shading wasn't like that common in games. You had pretty much the Wind Waker and maybe a handful of others, but I don't think it was until like the late aughts that cell shading became this kind of go-to. But it was also chosen to enable Kaneko to basically realize as much of his original vision as possible. They just looked at the resources and you know, saw that a more realistic art style would really limit the scope of the game. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And looking at the dates here, this game actually came out a month after Wind Waker, so that wasn't even a thing at the time that yeah wind waker's uh, big cell shaded thing hadn't even been seen and received yet so this was really yeah one of the early very early examples of the kind of cell shaded 3d visual style that we see here so it's yeah at least in terms of our larger larger game productions i'm sure there are plenty of examples beforehand yeah. yeah, this is this is definitely one of the most notable I can think of this early on. Like, mm-hmm. like you said, I'm sure there's other ones, but yeah, exactly. So yeah, this this is right when that this was part of that first wave of cell shaded games in mid to early mid two thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which makes sense because as yeah. you had a lot of smaller companies jumping to three D cell shading was very attractive because you could make the games look good, stand out. You didn't have to make extremely complex engines to try to simulate like realistic graphics and lighting and things like that. You could keep it. You could keep that artistic license to a lot of stuff. So it makes sense. So the press turn system was created so battles would be more dynamic than pure turn-based battle systems of earlier titles. The initial concept was like this meter where players and characters would be given turns which were extended if a character's weak spot was exposed. And in, and they, in order to ensure that it didn't become repetitive in battle, a second meter was implemented, so enemy, enemies would become acclimated with an attack that was used too often on them. So the problem was, because the displays needed for this cluttered up the screen, they revised it so it would be a single gaw, which we know as the little turn symbols, represented a party's number of turns, with a side turn being extended if a weakness was exposed or a critical strike happened. Which, yeah, ended up being really efficient when you think about it. Like, it's such a simple way to symbolize it, and it worked well. Yeah. Just having, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how much complexity a, simple, a, a system this simple has. Mm-hmm. It really does add a lot to what could otherwise be pretty standard feeling turn-based gameplay. And it's they keep the flavor of this in the Persona battle system and stuff, but this yeah. original version of it, I think, is significantly superior to the more simplified version we can see in per- Persona. Yeah, definitely agreed. I've always felt that way. Like, one, one more system isn't bad at all. It's very fun, but I do feel like it's, it's held back a lot versus press turn with there's just so much depth to it. 
And you can add little tweaks, like how in 4, they added the smirk system, things like that. So that added a little extra. Overall, it's just, you can just do so much with it already. So Yeah, for such a little addition, in terms of just programming oversight there, it just opens so many gameplay options. Exactly. So, I, yeah. I, I think it's interesting that along with, and maybe this is just me, but along with Demon Summoning and Fusion, this to me feels like the third pillar of Megaten gameplay mechanics. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to really think about the fact that the franchise had been going for about 15 years before it was invented because it just feels so fundamental to it now. Exactly. Yeah. You know, even if yeah. they've tweaked it and following games and Persona games, you know, the basic idea is still there. Exactly. That's so solid. Yeah, it, it, the way it just rewards you for just engaging in the basic uh, mechanics of enemy weaknesses and resistances mm-hmm. in a way that goes just beyond their weak to fire, so fire did more damage. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And it really creates cool, it's not like a complicated puzzle, but it's cool little like puzzle element to each encounter in each battle. And especially after you get to a point in your, and you're fighting all kinds of different mm-hmm. demons, you've, even once you figure out what an enemy's like elemental weaknesses are, you got to keep all that in your brain and remember it. <laughs> I I find that every time I sit down with an SMT game, I I yeah, outside of a handful like Jack Frost and Pixie, I can't remember what their elemental weaknesses are, and I've got to tease all that stuff out again. Uh, and they do change some of them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, so even if you think, exactly. oh yeah, I know, sorry, this enemy that is neither fire nor electricity themed has switched from being weak to ice to being weak to wind. Uh, yeah. yeah. Because uh, you know, obviously that's what this obscure elephant god would do. <laughs> exactly. A lot so. of it just is arbitrary. Oh, <laughs> and that, oh, and yeah. that's fine. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a lot to ask for mythology that every uh, figure have an obvious elemental strength and weakness. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, a tip to those of us starting new religions, make sure to give your deities... <laughs> Like obvious elemental assignments. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the uh, requests given by Okada was to simplify the gameplay, especially Demon Fusion, which had become fairly convoluted by Shin Megami Tensei 2. The equipment system was also redesigned, and Demon Interaction was made to be more accessible than previous titles. So the team wanted Nocturne to feel like a journey into hell compared with Dante's uh, Divine Comedy and uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, which they did a pretty good job kind of. Yeah, they nailed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. game definitely feels like that. Good job, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Conoco was mainly responsible for creating the inverted bubble structure of the Vortex world. And this design in the larger narrative was inspired by Gnostic uh, tradition, cyberpunk, early science fiction, and occult ideas like the Hollow Earth and the Heart Sutra, which is an important scripture within Mahayana Buddhism. 
So, in contrast to previous games, which offered three routes for the cast, Chaos was the only affiliation of the characters in this game. This was because the staff saw that the plotted out Chaos route offered more to the player, and because they wanted to shake up the core SMT mechanic, which also gave the team more development freedom. Another reason was because SMT2 had already explored a world governed by law, so it seemed natural to swing the other way and depict a world ruled by chaos. Kaneko had also stated that Nocturne was part of a movement to create a single unified mythos for the Megaten, yeah, for the Megaten series, which would uh, follow through future games, even if none of the games existed in the same timeline. So, the initial concept of a triggered rebirth to prevent stagnation was uh, suggested by Kaneko upon seeing a change in uh, fashion. After a period of flashy or gaudy clothing taste, people had begun wearing plain suits. He considered this a sign of stagnation in the world's life energy, necessitating a drastic change. And so, the game's main setting of Shinjuku and Tokyo and Ruins came from Okada, uh, which was based on his visualization of areas like uh, Kabukicho and Shibuya post-apocalypse. So the reasons, which uh, if you haven't played the game, generally speaking, substitute in for a more generalized idea of law route, chaos route, neutral route. Instead, there's a more a more interesting and nuanced 
philosophical perspective rather than just these honestly too broad to be terribly meaningful terms, which is a decision I really love that they made here. Yeah, um, definitely. So, oh, but should we be ruled over by an all-powerful God or should every man fend for himself as is the law of nature? Which of these two do we want? Yes. Or everything can be the same. Yeah. One of three. <laughs> <laughs> so I really like that they picked three perspectives, well, three plus. They picked a number of perspectives that you can actually have a conversation about and think about. Yeah, there's three perspectives, and then there's some offshoot factions as well. Yeah, but just there's a time and a place for your law chaos system, but you really cannot hang too much philosophical weight on that. And I really like that they were aware of that fact and decided to do something a little more involved there. The reasons were inspired by the team's uh, desire to show uh, several different styles of living. And the mannequins, which are these really cool human-ish but not human beings that like, they're one of my favorite things about this game because they are just so weird and interesting and tragic. It's awesome. Just really, and it's the kind of thing that in a more story heavy game could feel very, okay, we get it. The mannequins are the true victims, (laughs) (laughs) but here it just feels, you, you feel it more like they're not hammering it in. It's just a conclusion that you're allowed to come to just through your experience of the world. So they were created as a representation of the Vortex world and the war between the reason, acting as a mass force pressuring for the birth of a new world, the collective desire uh, to see the world created anew there. They reflected the challenges of living in a highly populated Japan and were based on the idea of people being overwhelmed by large numbers and acting in accordance with the common norms. Really cool element to the story that, again, shows that they're really pushing this game creatively instead of just relying on the same old goddess will be reborn and then you have to kill god at the end because reasons Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so the game was written by shogo isogai whose main task was to take okada and kaneko's vision and turn it into a story that would fit the framework of a traditional smt game the overall concept was so grand that it seemed at times too ambitious and involved layering of multiple interactions between different factions and ideals, alongside incorporating the common Megami Tensei narrative features such as multiple endings in a modern-day setting. Yeah, Many early uh, concepts, such as a scenario where giant demons battled each other in Tokyo, had to be cut. The design of the protagonist was inspired by cyberpunk and the body horror of uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome. It had originally been designed with uh, keyboards growing from inside of him, but Kaneko felt uncomfortable with that and instead redesigned him with full body tattoos that uh, conveyed his demonic power. In an interview, Kaneko said, From a design standpoint, I could have made him look like a monster, but I thought that was too common. Instead, I overlaid uh, the image of a shaman with the the main character's demon user side. Shamans around the world have one thing in common, tattoos. I emphasized the transition from a normal human being to a special being by adding a full-body tattoo to the character design. By doing so, I believe I was able to portray both the mysterious and sensual appeal of a demon. As far as character description was concerned, I decided the tattoo would serve as the stigma resulting from the transformation into a half-demon. Yeah, I think he uh, made some really good decisions there and thought them out well, and it worked nicely. Oh, yeah. That design is iconic. Yeah, it's it an iconic is. design. I, I like his reasons for going the way he did. I, I like this, yeah, this quote you picked out there because it feels like a 
<laughs> I feel like a lot of times with Japanese game designer interviews, uh, you just get, here's an explanation that <laughs> we have for why this is this way. <laughs> just take the explanation. It's exactly. good. I feel like mm-hmm. here he's, I could see the design we got coming through this thought process and he conveys what he was trying to do there in a way that makes sense to me, which I like. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. You- he had, I looked in a number of different sources and he had quite a lot to say about design. Yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. Could you imagine though if they really went with the keyboards growing yeah, from the side? Like, what? What is that? I can't even imagine. All that comes to mind is like that weird thing. It's in Ghost in the Shell, but I've seen it in other anime where it's like the hands turn up, open up, so there's yeah. the fingers, yeah. so they can type on keyboards. But it, I can't even imagine what. Yeah. What is that? Typing on his chest to summon a demon, like, okay, D, like look, turning his head down sideways so he can see the keyboard. D E M O N, enter. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I understand why he felt uncomfortable with the keyboard. I would have. <laughs> I would have also felt that way. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, apparently the design was also inspired by uh, the red hot chili peppers, of all things. According to Connecto, he imagined the main character running around the desert naked. Okay. Um. That was something that I found that in research was a little unclear from the context and translation, whether he was talking about the main character or Anthony Kiedis. Mm. Yeah. Either way, it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, either way. Yep. (laughs) an expanded director's cut of the game titled uh, Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne uh, Maniacs that's maniac but with an X instead of a C (laughs) which is not a word was released approximately one year after the original version it included both uh, cut content and additional features such as an optional dungeon with a lot of story stuff that uh, leads to a sixth ending this is the version we all know here in the west as far as I can tell it's just a better version possibly significantly in a lot of ways, so not missing out. It's one of those cases where, you know, like like how the Pokemon games, we got the updated blue version from Japan as opposed to the original red and green Japanese versions, which are just yeah. slightly different and slightly worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, the the original version does not. It it sounds like if we feel like this one was already stripped down, that one seems uh, almost grueling. Not almost. Seems pretty grueling. Yeah. <laughs> so the lead character of Capcom's Devil May Cry series, Dante, from Devil May Cry, appears as a uh, guest character. His inclusion in the game was suggested by a member of the Atlas staff who was a fan of the DMC games. Since Dante is a demon hunter, Atlas sa- signed on to the idea. Atlas created a cutscene where Dante confronted the game's hero. Capcom was satisfied with the video and allowed Atlas to use the character. And that's nope. why Dante is in every SMT game going forward. <laughs> And a million memes were born. Exactly. Yeah. Bless you, random Atlas staff member. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So while the game's uh, sales fell short from Atlas's sales projections in Japan, it was a reasonably successful game in America, given its uh, niche quality. And over time, it became a cult hit and the best-selling SMT game up to that point. Its success had a long tail, warranting reprints until 2009, even though the game's industry was well into the PS3 era by that time. Yeah, this game, as we've said, aged quite nicely in many respects. It did, yeah. Yeah, and it was, it's pretty wild to think of a game that might not have been like a huge hit at release, at least not what to the degree that 
Atlas wanted, but was still being reprinted six years later. Like, PS2 game. It was probably one of the few, along with, like, Persona 4 and Let's Dance. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I I feel like this is one of those games that really benefits from word of mouth. Like, it's a game that somebody plays, and they're not going to forget about it. And they'll probably recommend it to their friends who they think would like it. And I could see it just spreading very slowly that way over the years. Okay, moving on to the uh, mechanics. So the battles basically function like traditional JRPG turn-based combat, but uh, with one key exception being the uh, press turns. Basically, we've already talked about it, but if you're not familiar with it, in a really basic way, any actions such as attacking, using skills, items, contacting demons, and summoning commands normally costs one turn. But if you score a critical hit that exploits the opponent's weakness, your turn is basically considered half used or you're giving an extra turn for that character for that party member which gives them another chance to attack. Yeah, and it's just we've already talked about it quite a bit. It really rewards players for playing smartly and strategically and elevates it from just traditional turn-based JRPG combat. Yeah, it also punishes you for not doing that, which yes. is, I think, also quite important mm-hmm. because, especially with a big RPG like this, you do just get into a, okay, I know this is the most efficient way to do this, but attack, okay, they're dead. <laughs> Walk forward, next random encounter, attack, yeah, all right, we're good. It dem- like With this system, just by not paying attention to what you're doing, pretty weak enemies can totally wreck you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and then especially not taking advantage of buffs, debuffs which matador is that boss that's why so many people have issues with matador because that was the boss that absolutely made sure you were actually like doing things beyond oh let me just attack exploit this weakness okay i'm finished like you didn't buff or debuff he was just gonna steamroll your party (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that's really one of the tricks the megaten games are hard there's no denying that (laughs) and they can be cheap and unfair at times but while there's definitely a strategic element to it really once you figure out that unlike most jrpgs elemental statuses matter and busted debuffs matter it's it's like seeing through the code of the matrix you're like okay now i get it but until you have that uh, revelation or somebody tells you it's going to work you over. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, demon conversations and fusions were mostly unchanged from previous Megaten games. They simplified the fusion a little bit, and they made demon negotiations a little more forgiving. Yeah. yeah which was a good choice. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think a lot more based in, like, it's you can't do it all the time, but if you can read the personality of a demon in the dialogue, you could often make a successful negotiation with them, where in previous games, it was really just a matter of chance. 
Yeah, I, 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 they had the different personality types to some degree in previous ones, if I'm remembering right. But they did really. They didn't really predict much in terms of how to actually do the negotiations. But in this one, they started the system that would continue to evolve, where the personality types actually would respond somewhat predictably. Again, somewhat because. There's a level of chaos there to it, which makes sense to you figure out, okay, this demon seems like they would be more responsive to this answer, uh, which the system I think really needed uh, because it really did feel just like playing a slot machine sometimes. uh... Yeah, and I think the dialogue became a lot more engaging too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It wasn't just, quote, quote, here are certain personality types that we're going to affix to them. It actually felt like you were interacting with a NPC with a clearly defined personality. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Let's see. Magatama abilities uh, became a bit more complex with uh, Nocturne. Magatama worked in the following way. Basically, when a hero levels up and they are equipped with the Magatama, you learn a skill and the Magatama may go wild. So in order to learn this skill, the hero must have the prerequisite level or higher than the top skill that that time requires. So example, in order to learn Rampage, you have to be level 10 or higher when you level up with its Makatama. So the level requirement isn't listed by numbers, and it can only be seen on each Makatama's glow and movement. After leveling, the Makatama may grow wild. This is a random effect such as healing or stat boost, but it can also have bad effects as ne- such as negative status ailments. The main character is only allowed up to eight skills. If you've reached your limit and you wish to learn a new skill, you have to replace you know a previous skill with the new one learned. And so it's actually a really interesting system. They decided to go with something way more unique and engaging and much closer tied with the plot. Because Magatamas actually are related or plot relevant. It's not just like a, a basic RPG leveling system. And it's interesting because I feel like this definitely inspired a lot of the other Mega Ten games going forward to do this in various ways, like actually tie in uh, skill learning and leveling with something that's uh, a bit more suited and unique to that game. Like, for instance, of course, the Whisper system and uh, SMT4, things like that. Yeah, and I don't think we actually mentioned that the Magatama are in the lore of the game, these weird little bug demon things that the hero, like, eats <laughs> and that live inside of him <laughs> uh, and give him powers. They, they take the place of your more standard equipment, which is a welcome change because managing equipment, especially when you have this demon guy, feel, would feel... It just wouldn't feel quite right, and doing it this way, I think, fits with the feeling they were going for a lot more. Yeah, this more. It is very kind of cyberpunky feeling, bio cyberpunky. Your existence or David Cronenberg stuff, really. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what I love too is that uh, when you have your first Makatama, which is given to you by Lucifer, great cutscene. It's actually done in first person. Yeah. Where Lucifer drops this like worm thing into your eye, and it burls mm-hmm. from your eye into your brain. <laughs> yeah, and it's really <laughs> <laughs> absolutely brutal. And yeah, really, I think highlighted the 
in inhumanity now of the main character. This, this character now is really is half demon. He's been forcibly sucked into this world of demons where your powers have these really crazy ways of manifesting, just very, like, bizarre and brutal. So I really love that a lot. It really set the tone for the game. Okay, you are not a part of humanity so much anymore. That was really cool. Yeah, it works nicely. It would have been very easy for them to just say that you were the demi-fiend, now a weird demon man. You still equip your armor and... Mm-hmm. Your demi-fiend power is that you can summon demons, like those guys with computers in the other games. But you better get the mithril armor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really, really easy to do that. It was, it was a really smart decision. So yeah. many smart design decisions in this game. Yeah, just, yeah, like, they clearly thought about it, and they picked stuff that was a good choice most of the time. Yeah. That's the main key to making a good video game. <laughs> Take a long time to think about your decisions, decisions, and then when you do, uh, make a good decision. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably oh. wrap up here. Yeah. This episode. Although I do think it was interesting that once you beat the game, you could actually unlock first-person viewpoint. Um, yeah, I, so. I feel like that was just them telling their hardcore diehard fans to just shut up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Look, look, it's in the game. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and in the next episode, we are going to get into the meat of the story of the game and uh, gameplay. So, yeah. Is there anything that uh, you guys would like to plug before we close out here? Once again, plug Black Girl Gamers. I've talked about them, you know, before in previous episodes, but in case this is your first one. Basically, Black Girl Gamer is a group in which we have black women from all sorts of um, different parts of the video game industry, such as developers, journalists. Uh, especially uh, streamers, Twitch and uh, YouTube and such. And we've all basically gathered together, like a support network. You can, of course, check out our uh, content on Twitch. If you follow the Black Girl Gamers uh, Twitter account, you can get updates, clips, things like that of when one of the women are streaming. You can support us by buying uh, merchandise. It's a really great group, a really great cause. It helps support us too in terms of being able to provide us with opportunities that we often may not have access to. But if you support us, that really goes a long way just by watching our streams or merch or things like that. Definitely check us out. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's my main plug for today. (laughs) Good stuff. Check it out. Thank you. I got nothing. I've been busy with horrible, boring real life things for the last forever. Um, (laughs) And I don't really want to plug any of those because we play video games to escape that stuff. Exactly. (laughs) You don't want to plug your... uh, Water heater. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I highly recommend searching the internet for how to install a garbage disposal. Um, <laughs> and then just not be able to get an answer on whether it will fit my sink or not. <laughs> <laughs> We're so happy to have you back, Alex. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back in the, back in the SMT yeah. realm. Absolutely. 
As for me, to start with, uh, you can please spread the word uh, about Mega Ten Marathon and uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, anywhere else you can. Uh, rate and review podcasts, that would be awesome. We're on Twitter and Facebook and also host another JRPG uh, Games Club podcast called uh, Combo Chain. Check that out. And uh, yeah, if you're feeling generous, there's a Patreon that uh, you can kick down a few bucks to at Mirror Image Studios. And uh, yeah, there will be a Patreon-exclusive podcast coming someday <laughs> that is based <laughs> on different anime and media based on JRPGs. So keep your eye out for that, too. Uh, I think that's about it. Anything else you guys want to say? No. Cool. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back sooner rather than later with more about Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne. Okay, take care, everyone. Bye-bye.